Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Need to Know. Real talk about the reality of unidentified aerial phenomena. From Australia, Ross Coltart. From the US, Bryce Zabel. Good evening, and depending on what part of the world you're in, maybe it's good morning to all our fellow denizens of UFO research and interest around the world. I'm Ross Coulthart from Australia in the sunny southern highlands of New South Wales, and in, in Los Angeles in the United States is my friend and colleague Bryce Zabel. G'day, Bryce. How are you, mate? I'm good, Roscoe, and i got to tell you, you're not the only one who gets confused. This whole thing, the, the U.S. just went on to daylight savings time, which is our Sunday, which I have learned that is usually your Monday, only we're off an hour. So it's really lucky that we even got together to do this on time. And and the bulletin is that the U.S. Senate has unanimously uh, passed a bill that has to be approved by the House and signed by the president that would make daylight savings time all the time here in the United States. So the more things change, uh, the more they stay the same. Well, my friend, as you know, the world is a very weird place right now. I mean, not only is it the weather, I mean, it's raining here and it's meant to be summer and it's honestly like an English winter. And I understand in Los Angeles, it's your, well, you're going into winter and it's actually quite beautiful there. Well, actually, we're coming out of winter. We're now officially oh, you're coming out of winter. That's we're right. We're coming out of winter. Now it's springtime. And I got to tell you, uh, it's uh, 75 degrees and beautiful here in Southern California. And I don't want to get into the whole mask issue with uh, COVID, but I will just say one observation, just a journalistic observation is I went out for lunch today and you couldn't even find a place to park in the parking lot. Every restaurant was jammed and not a mask in sight. Well, maybe a couple of masks, but mostly people are done with it. And um, it was it was a very different time here. Everybody was out and it felt like kind of a public party that was going on. Isn't it strange, though, the way that COVID's been the dominant issue in the news for so many months now, in fact, for years, and now we've got this horrifying war in yeah. the Ukraine that's just dominating the news bulletins. And I, I think it would be remiss of us not to talk about the war in the Ukraine. And I guess the one takeaway I have, Bryce, is frankly, if the Russians really do have advanced technology, such as has been suggested, might have been manifested in the Tic Tac or the GoFast or the Gimbal or these anomalous objects, drones seen by the US Navy off the US coast. They're sure as hell not using them in the Ukraine. They're taking a battering. 
Uh, I mean, we are, this proves that we are twin sons of different mothers, my friend, because I literally had scribbled down the same thing. Does, does the Ukraine situation prove to us that the Russians don't have uh, the, the UAP drone technology that, that at least officialdom has once in a while tried to float out there as an explanation? Because I think most people would believe if things are going as badly in the battlefield as they have been for the, the Russians over the past few weeks, that if they had it in their, uh, in their uh, if they had that arrow in their quiver, they might have fired it. I think one of the things I'm really interested in is if you think about the connection, the clear nexus between UAPs and nuclear facilities, nuclear weapons, it does interest me to know whether there's going to be any increased sightings in and around places like Chernobyl and some of the other nuclear facilities in, the, in Ukraine, because there is this long history of a clear link between nuclear facilities and nuclear weapons and UAPs. And uh, I'd love to know, I mean, if anybody's hearing of any incidents that have taken place in the uh, in Ukraine, I'd love to know about it. Well, I, I, so would I. And obviously, it's a little concerning when you hear about Chernobyl under attack and, and nuclear power plants on fire and, and that kind of thing, uh, particularly given the, the interference that has historically been associated with such things by UAP. So... I don't know. I mean, I, I, it concerns me, and, and I just wanted to put a pin on the drone thing. Are you agreeing with me, though, that, that uh, if they had a drone that was a UAP, that it could do the things that have uh, been observed these UAPs doing, that they might have used it? There's, well, obviously. I mean, if they had technology like that, they would have used it. <clears throat> Can I just tell you, though, there's an yeah. incident that I think is one of my favorite incidents, if there is such a thing involving UAPs over nuclear facilities. And it happened in Soviet Ukraine mm. in a place called Belyukrovich in Soviet Ukraine on the 4th of October, 1982. And it involved an ICBM silo that was very nearly brought to the point of discharging its weapon and bringing the world very close to nuclear war. It's one of the times we've come the closest to nuclear war. And at this Balukarovich, forgive me if the pronunciation is wrong, Sounds nuclear good to me. weapons yeah. silo, um, at about six in the evening, there was a large geometrically shaped object, 3,000 feet in diameter, hovering in the sky over the silo. And a Lieutenant Colonel Vladimir Platinev, a missile engineer, said that this UFO had a completely even surface with no visible portholes. And simultaneously, inside the ICBM missile silo, an emergency warning light indicated that a nuclear missile had launched, had, sorry, had switched to launch mode. The communications officer said that something had somehow entered the correct code to launch a Soviet nuclear missile from Ukraine. But Moscow hadn't ordered a launch nor had any personnel in the bunker actually touched the control panel. And for 15 seconds, technicians were running around panicking because they were frantically trying to stop the launch. And then without any explanation, the launch sequence was abandoned. It may have been in your book, but there's a quote from someone um, on that incident saying that, that that person, that Russian who did not fire and who did what he could to not respond to those orders was really the hero of the day. And, and that's certainly true. And I'll tell you the thing that really disturbs me when I, 
I, I take no joy in hearing stories about how the Russian military is inept or not not so good because I mean I, I certainly don't want them to prevail. But what I'm, I'm taking uh, concern about is it's it is concerning if they have this large nuclear missile force and they're using possibly old technology and that they're not as on top of it as we wish they would be. I mean, these are concerning times. Oh, mate, if, if command and control is as woeful as it appears to be, logistics, command and control, communications is as woeful as it appears to be in Ukraine, we are at a very dangerous time in history. I, I think last time we spoke, we were talking about how close the clock is, the doomsday clock is to midnight. We're 100 seconds to midnight. It's the closest the doomsday clock published by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists has ever been. Uh, we are. We're in incredibly dangerous times. But look, let's record some of the the week's news, Bryce. Yeah. I mean, for me, one of the top moments was... Even though he's spoken before about the reality of UAPs, the former head of the DGSA, Alain Joulet, who's the um, spy boss, former spy boss, the equivalent of the CIA in France, he went public on a podcast and said that he was aware of underwater submerged objects travelling greater than the speed of sound underwater. Oh. I mean, it's amazing that you can have an intelligence official, former, making an assertion like that, and it's not immediately front-page well, news in every news bulletin. I find, I find it astonishing. Here, here, my friend. Uh, yes, it is astonishing. However, it is interesting that uh, we've had our own selection of CIA uh, bosses, uh, former bosses speaking out, John Brennan, of course, and, and uh, there's been a couple of others. And now we have this uh, this French spy master speaking out. I think it is time to pay attention to them. And And honestly, if you think about how fast these things are recorded going uh, in, in the air. The, the concept of going faster than the speed of sound underwater is mind-boggling. Now, I did see somebody, I, I, I haven't been able to look into this, but they were saying that sound travels faster underwater, so that's a relative thing. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I really want to know. I want to know, yeah. I, I mean, I'd love to interview Monsieur Juliet to see whether he's talking about the speed of sound underwater or whether he's talking about the speed of sound in air. Although let's, underwater. let's be honest. I mean, nuclear submarines are, are pretty fast for what we've got, and they don't approach anything close to that, uh, if, unless I'm missing something. Yeah, I mean, let's and, yeah. even if it's the sound, if, even if it's the slower version of the speed of sound in air underwater, right. you're, you're talking about traveling one mile, sorry, five miles in one second. Okay. Okay. Now, um, I'm sure being that's, an Australian, correct. you're a pretty fast swimmer, but uh, let's, <laughs> you know, let's just say that exceeds most capacity for anything that we're aware of in water. And, and when you've got someone with a responsible job like him talking about it, I mean, it's just time to pay attention. We can't keep ignoring this. Now, we should also point out, because we pay attention to the historical bit of all this, uh, spy masters have been speaking out for a while. And it goes back to Roscoe Hillencotter, who was the first CIA chief uh, back in 1960, speaking out. We'll talk more about the, those days uh, in the rest of the show. But, I mean, it is it is an amazing time, and, and I share your 
shock and amazement that when something like this comes out, journalists aren't just uh, lining up to to track him down for an interview. Uh, it just seems odd to me, and it still is odd. Yep. And also, they're not covering what's going on in our Congress, because I think you're across the detail of this. But as I understand it, there was more legislation just in mm. the last week or so, which has entrenched the transparency requirements from the intelligence community in the Defense Department. That's true. We're all talking about the uh, the requirements that were in the uh, National Defense Authorization Act that was passed and signed at the end of last year. A lot of that language uh, details how that's going to work. But what happened for uh, uh, on a specific basis this week is that uh, the um, the omnibus bill for the $728 billion Defense Department budget was signed by President Biden after uh, after whatever this amount of time was. And that means that those uh, those mandates that were contained in the bill are now to be funded. Now, it's unclear how much they're going to be funded uh, and at what level, of course, but they are to be funded and there seem to be some teeth coming into it. But I keep hearing, as you seem to let on, that uh, there are a number of people, uh, I guess this would include Chris Mellon, who has voiced this uh, opinion, who feel like there are voices and uh, actors within the U.S. government, particularly in the Department of Defense, who would like to put the classification level back up again and make sure that the transparency isn't quite uh, what we think it might or should be. Are you hearing the same thing? No. Yes, I am. And, and this is very important because one of the things that was never made entirely clear in the uh, defence appropriation legislation that was passed at the end of last year in the Congress was just how much the public would be being told about the classified reports that are due to be provided to the congressional committees, the Senate Intelligence Committee and the Armed Services Committee in particular in the Congress. And it's not clear still just how much the public will be told in an unclassified version of what the Congress is secretly right. told, no doubt in, in skiffs and heavily protected committee hearing environments. Because the US military, according to Christopher Mellon and Lou Elizondo, they've both raised their concerns about this. Chris Mellon, the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, and Lou Elizondo, who was the chap that led the Pentagon's secret investigation into UAPs at the time called the ATIP program, at least public. publicly. It was part of what was another program called ORSAP. But... Um, Whatever the case, the new UAP task force is gathering intelligence and data from all over the United States government at the moment. And frankly, we're being told we're going to get snowed. And well, that's a worry. Well, it's a worry. And obviously, it's good to have people on your side who don't want to get snowed. Uh, I'm just going to take a moment here and veer off from the uh, the interesting and valid point you just made into the the, the sublimely ridiculous, but uh, if if it's if it's a a warning at all about how the Department of Defense wants us to look at what's going on, you referred to the newly formed UAP. Well, there was a UAP task force, and now the Defense Department is calling it the AOI MSG, which we've been laughing about because it stands for. And let's see if we can do it: Airborne Object Identification. Uh, uh, 
You see, it's designed to be okay. forgettable, Bryce. All right. Designed so, to be forgettable. Now, folks, you, those of you who have been following us remember that a, a couple episodes back we just said, well, damn it, we're going to have to come up with our own uh, way to refer to this office because I don't think we want to go through the next years talking about Eomsga or whatever. And as my wife pointed out, <laughs> MSG to her means monosodium glutamate. Monosodium glutamate. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the whole thing is strange. So, uh, Ross, you and I have decided uh, that at least for our purposes, we should call that office the UAP office, only UAP stands for something different now. The um, I, I love this. I think we're very clever coming up with this. Unpronounceable acronym from the Pentagon. Unpronounceable <laughs> acronym from the Pentagon. Yes, folks, you heard it here first. I, I hope it catches on. I don't know if it will. It's probably confusing, but it can't be any more confusing than AOI. MSG. And by the way, as long as we're talking about what's in a name, let me wrap up this uh, this uh, first section of our podcast here with uh, a little name game uh, over the you know, I remember it was on our very first show, Ross, and, and we talked about whether we would call these things uh, UAP for unidentified aerial phenomena or UFO for unidentified flying object. So um, and I wanted to say that a, a whole year earlier, I had asked people on uh, through my Twitter account uh, what what we should call it. And I gave them only two choices, UFO or UAP. And UFO won 72 to 28 percent. And there were close to a thousand people voting on it. So we went back out, folks, and we asked again, but we threw in a little bit of subtlety. We said, Okay, what's in a name? What should we call these strange objects? We got 786 votes in a three-day period, and we gave them these choices, UFO, UAP, they're interchangeable, or they're both wrong. So I don't know if we, we can't get a drum roll here, but I will say that UFO won again, but not by the same margin when given options. UFO got 36.8% of the vote. <laughs> Which I think the for, point the point is that, that that none of them really work. They're not flying they and they're not aerial. Some of them is, are underwater the way, and some of them uh, are in orbit. Both wrong. I mean, well, okay, they were interchangeable. Came in second with thirty point five percent. UAP really didn't measure up nineteen point six percent. But your point, Ross, that you just made, thirteen point one percent said they're both wrong. And and the truth is, if we're going to talk about unident I mean unidentified submergible objects going past the speed of sound underwater, UFO or UAP aren't quite right. So coming up next, we've decided it's time to look at the actual history of the investigations into the phenomenon, the official reports that have been done. And coming up next, we're going to take you to one of the most little known. And it was an exploration done by a chap in Australia called Harry Turner. And I think his story is intriguing. Stay with us. We're back in a moment because you need to know. Well, we're back. And, you know, Ross, I, as I've said many times, I enjoyed reading your book in plain sight specifically because it talked a great deal about things that I didn't know a great deal about what was going on in Australia. And I can pretty well go through the litany of reports that we've we've gone through here in the United States. But I was fascinated by this one about a Harry Turner 
a man who was very intrigued by the UAP issue. And, and I, it's a hell of a story, and I, I wish you'd tell it. I'll take you to a lonely, empty desert, Bryce, round about 1960 at a place called Weewak, in the middle of nowhere in South Australia at a place called Maralinga. And this is where the British government was testing its nuclear weapons. It had been doing these tests in its wisdom on Australian territory throughout the 1950s and the 1960s. And this, if you like, is our Nevada test range. It's one of the largest areas of ostensibly empty land in the world. It's massive. And there were actually nomadic Aboriginal people living there, and they suffered terribly as a result of these tests and lost a lot of their ancestral land. But we won't go there for the moment, albeit it's an important point. But there was a young scientist called Harry Turner, who was a physicist. He'd gone through Melbourne University, and he got roped in to helping the uh, investigations into the, the bomb tests at Maralinga. Very, very secret tests. And he was a top secret, cleared young physicist walking around as the health officer on these nuclear tests, making sure that radiation was monitored and making sure everything was run properly. In the course of his work, he came across a, a group of sightings that took place at this place, WeWAC, which were never explained. And uh, Harry essentially was intrigued because he concluded as a result of what he'd seen that these objects were possibly extraterrestrial, possibly flying saucers. And so as he progressed through the Defence Department, and in 1971, 1970, by that time, he was a scientific analyst with the Directorate of Scientific and Technical Intelligence, the DSTI, with Australia's Joint Intelligence Bureau, which is, I guess, the rough equivalent of your defence intelligence agency at the time. It was like the, the spy agency for our defence force. And he was one of the chief geeks, one of the chief scientists. And in 1970, he pushed for a UFO investigation team inside the Department of Defence. And he made an incredibly uh, lucid, well-formed argument that summarised what he knew, not just from people like Jacques Vallée, who even then was playing an influential mm. role in commentary and public commentary, but also from his own liaisons with scientists not only from the US but also from Britain, because one of the great untold stories is the number of sightings that took place during these British tests at Maralinga. They mirrored exactly what the US was seeing at its test facilities in the various atomic bomb sites uh, in the Nevada test range in, in uh, Nevada in the United States. And it was clear that something anomalous, some kind of intelligent craft was taking an interest in these nuclear weapons tests in Australia. And so he wrote a report. Before you get to the report, let me just ask you a question. If, if he's mirroring what we were saying is going on, what, what would that be? What, what, what was being seen in Australia that was the mirror of what we were seeing here? He presented an analysis to his bosses, basically saying that the UFO reports that had been seen by US Air Force intelligence and by Australian intelligence were real phenomena mm. that had flight characteristics so far in advance of US aircraft that only an extraterrestrial origin could be envisaged. 
And he explained to his bosses how the CIA, through its Office of um, Scientific Intelligence, the OSI, initiated an inquiry that eventually led to the, (laughs) I always loved the term grudge, the inquiries like Project Sign and Project Grudge inside the US. I've I've always joked to myself that Project Grudge was the the US military begrudgingly having to do an (laughs) investigation into the the whole issue of UAPs. What Harry says, though, and this is really interesting, this is a guy inside the very apex of our defense science technology uh, organization. He actually said candidly that the CIA was so alarmed at the number of UFO sightings that they were concerned the Russians, the Soviets, might take advantage of such a situation. And so OSI, the CIA, acting through a so-called Robertson panel meeting in 1953, persuaded the US Air Force to use eventually Project Blue Book as a means of publicly debunking UFOs. And at a later stage, they were they were pushing for a crash program into anti-gravity research. And what's fascinating to me about Harry Turner is here is a guy who's got top secret clearances. He's seen strange objects. He believes that they were extraterrestrial craft hovering over Australia's nuclear weapons test facility at Maralinga. And he's flatly saying that essentially there's been a cover-up, that the US is trying to shut down the whole UAP issue by publicly debunking UFOs whilst secretly investigating them and launching a crash program into anti-gravity. Yet again, the cognitive dissonance between what is being said publicly by the US Air Force and what is being said privately in confidential documents. This document that he wrote, it's about 30 pages. It was a top secret report prepared for his bosses which candidly said the US was conducting secret research into anti-gravity and they were taking these UAPs very, very seriously indeed. Although he never... uh he never took it to the same degree that Harry Turner obviously did. It sounds like Harry Turner has a little bit of the flavor of Australia's J. Allen Hynek. He's uh, he's an academic originally, correct? And and he's working on the inside advising the Defense Department at roughly the same time. Yep, he was an academic and he was a maverick. In fact, um, Bill Chalker, who's a, a UFO UAP researcher here in Australia of great renown, told me last week that um, one of his former colleagues, one of Harry's former colleagues, acknowledged that Harry was very naughtily spending about 80% of his time as a defence scientist investigating UAPs because he was so fascinated by the issue. And I really recommend Harry's report because you can read it in the National Archives of Australia, and we can put the link up on the program later. But he essentially described what you and I take for granted, but which is very articulated, very rarely articulated, which is he essentially described that the US Air Force erected a facade of Mm. ridicule to shut down public investigation into the UAP issue. And the the Australian Air Force, together with many other countries of the world, he said, give credence only to the US Air Force public facade and appear to have uncritically accepted the associated information. And Harry acknowledged that this information has been widely discredited by retiring US service personnel formally engaged on UAP investigations, as well as by scientists and private citizens. 
he was telling his bosses that they needed to launch a UAP investigation program. And what's really interesting is they supported him. They were keen. Was there a any kind of ongoing Australian investigation going on at that time when he was suggesting, let's get really serious and let's take this on? Well, we never had anything as structured as Project Blue Book, which was the exhaustive, um, I think went for nearly 20 years investigation by the US Air Force. But if you go through the files of um, the correctly named DAFI, the Department of Air Force Intelligence in Australia, they've got thousands of reports of UAP sightings right across the country. And it shows that they were monitoring and tabulating and assessing any UAPs at all, or UFOs as they called them at the time. They were taking it seriously. And what seems to have happened is there seems to have been a consultation between the Department of Air Force Intelligence and the Air Force Office of Special Investigations in the United States. Because initially, Harry's bosses were very supportive. They were actually giving voice to the idea that, yes, there might be a case for even a quick reaction force to actually take this so seriously that when there was a UFO UAP sighting, a team could be deployed, including Harry, to go and investigate these cases, kind of like an X-Files investigation. So he writes this report and he tells them, you guys better get on the stick here and you you need to do this investigation. You need to step your game up. You need to be uh, taking teams out to these sites. Did they? Did they do anything with this report or did they just file no, it away? It got, say, Thank you very it much. It got shut down. It yeah. got shut down. And, and in fact, there's the most delightful letter on the front of the file where um, I think one of the senior people in the in the defence science area of the Defence Department says, I am not convinced there is a sufficient scientific intelligence component in the UFO problem, such as to warrant any diversion of Australia's very limited resources for scientific intelligence research. It is evident that there still is considerable controversy concerning UFOs, and this will undoubtedly continue until the subject is fully examined by some competent authority. Such an examination, however, would require a considerable effort to collect information on UFO sightings, to investigate reports of such sightings, and to examine all information in an objective and scientific manner. It is for consideration as to whether the Department of Defence would... uh, would would uh, afford such an effort. So basically they used money as the excuse. They I, said listen, they could Ross, afford I, it. I don't for a minute like what that, that person said in his response, but I sure do like hearing you read it. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like you do the Aussie bureaucrat voice better than, I mean, it's, it's a great job you've done there. Listen, um, I think uh, Harry Turner will be, we will post that file, uh, or at least uh, we'll post the link to that file so people can read the report. It makes a hell of a read. I've read it. And um, and when we come back, by the way, what we're going to try to do is uh, one of Harry's contemporaries in the United States was uh, a Captain Edward Ruppelt. And uh, Ross has been talking uh, a little bit about Blue Book. We've all heard about Blue Book, but you may not have heard all about Ruppelt and, and some of the things that he did in the early days, very fascinating. Need to Know continues in a moment.
Welcome back to Need to Know. Well, we left you last segment with the lamentations of an Australian physicist, Harry Turner, telling us how he was snowed by the Australian Air Force in his efforts to get a UFO, UAP investigation team up and running in Australia. And he lamented that essentially the RAF, the Australian Air Force, was guided by the US Air Force, which was essentially allaying public interest by denying the reality of UAPs or UFOs. Now, Bryce, you've been doing a bit of digging <laughs> yeah. into the, the, the various um, committees and groups that were set up by the CIA, the US Air Force and the defense community to investigate UAPs in the US were being told publicly all through the period of the Cold War and right up to the present day that there's no issue of national security, no threat to flight safety. But behind the scenes, mate, mm. what were those committees? What's the story of the history of investigations by the US into the phenomenon? Well, we're never going to tell the entire story in this uh, this podcast, but I will say I really liked what you did with uh, Harry Turner. I enjoyed hearing the story through his point of view. And so I want to tell people the story of a young Air Force officer, a guy that lands a gig that's going to either make or break his career. And that happens to be someone named Captain Edward Ruppelt, who was the very first guy to get the gig running uh, Project Blue Book here in the United States. And before I tell you about Harry and how he interacted with Blue Book and, and literally how he met his end, I want everyone to understand this was a decorated World War II bombardier. This is the guy that dropped the bombs. And he was awarded five battle stars. He got two theater combat ribbons, three air medals, two distinguished flying crosses. I mean, this was a decorated man. He was a young man when he was doing all that. He got out of the war um, and he got a Bachelor of Science degree in aeronautical engineering from Iowa State College. So I think he thought that was going to be his life story. But it turned out there was another uh, story in line for him, which was uh, do you, do you think he wanted to be? Do you think he wanted to be a UFO investigator, Bryce? No, I can imagine I don't for a combat combat pilot, he would have lamented being asked to do it. Would he? he didn't at all. In fact, what happened is he thought, okay, well, you know, like a lot of other of my friends, I got a chance to go to college. That's great, and now I'll go do something else with my life. But uh, the Korean War was being fought at that time, and they pulled him back into the Air Force, and uh, he got assigned during the Korean War to the Air Technical Intelligence Center, which is headquartered at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. All right, so what happened is, uh, by the time he comes in there, this is a time when the United States was, it wasn't exactly the world that you're describing where they were saying one thing publicly and another privately. They did work their way up to that, and frankly, during his time at the at the head of the whole thing. But we were in the middle of something called Project Sign at the time, because there was a lot of stuff going down in 1947, 1948. And uh, he was one of the guys where the, the very young guys involved in that. And then his Project and, Sign. And can I, can I interrupt? Yeah, yeah, sure. Can I just interrupt for a moment? The, the key point that I take away from that is Project Sign, Project Grudge, all of these operations before Blue Book they were taking the issue seriously, weren't yes. they? They were, they were taking engaging it. with and acknowledging it as real. Uh, in fact, uh, what uh, Ruppelt said over and over is that uh, uh, there were always uh, divisions of opinion. Some people wanted to believe it just had to be the Russians or uh, or us or some 
earthly explanation like comets or whatever. And there was a large and sometimes growing group of people that said it had to be interplanetary. And this was something that was acknowledged uh, back at those times. And it wasn't until later they decided to get out of that business. But what happened to Rupelt? He was really organized. This is a guy, I'm an organized guy, so I can relate to that. He was just very organized. And so they said, well, you know, we're going to turn this into Project Blue Book. Uh, this is in 1952. And they said, uh, we're going to put you in charge of this thing. And so he ended up being in charge of Project Blue Book. And one of the things that makes uh, Captain Edward Rupelt stand out, folks, is that he is the guy that first coined the phrase unidentified flying objects. They were, of course, flying saucers from 1947 until he got the gig over at Blue Book. And he said, that doesn't seem quite right. It doesn't describe exactly what many of them look like or even how they, they fly. So unidentified flying objects became his thing. Now, when he first got that gig, he described the world of the Air Force, Ross, that, that, that he had lived in uh, for the past couple of years as a state of near panic, uh, that there were just a lot of people running around the Air Force, as you pointed out, who just said, we don't know what this is, but it feels like national security to us. And so this, these were these were tense times. Um, and he also said that when people he did say this, though, as time went on, when the press would go and talk to these people and say, well, what do you know about this? They got the same. This is a quote from him. They got the same treatment that you would get today if you inquired about the number of thermonuclear weapons in the U.S.'s atomic stockpile. In other words, you know, ju just because the the military was willing to talk about it, they didn't have a formal way to uh, to get rid of this, but they they were uh, not eager to lay out all their work product in front of everyone. Now, uh, you, I just want to, I'm going to drag you in here. While he's on the job doing Project Blue Book, uh, something called the Robertson panel comes in. And you alluded to that. Why don't you bring us up to speed on what Robertson was? Well, essentially, the Robertson panel is best described, my, my friend, as a CIA snow job. It was an attempt to basically shut down public interest in the phenomenon. That's what Harry Turner thought here in Australia. That's what he'd been told by his mates over in, in America. And that's certainly acknowledged now in released declassified documents from your official national archives that show that there was a deliberate attempt to shut down public awareness of the UAP issue by essentially using ridicule and um, dismissiveness. And the Robertson panel recommended that as a strategy, which is quite astonishing. It was very, very unscientific. Yeah. And the excuse that was given was that essentially UAPs were a distraction, UFOs were a distraction from monitoring the very real threat of potential Soviet incursions into American aerospace. But I've never quite bought the explanation that they wanted to shut down the issue because of that, because surely any object breaching your airspace, your national security, hovering over sensitive national installations, whatever it is, it's a national security threat. And by definition, isn't that what the US military is meant to be protecting the nation from? Yeah. And this is why I've, I, I, I think that the argument that 
that was laid out to try and use the Robertson panel to justify shutting down public concern. It's BS, and it's BS to this day, because it's still very much the argument that dictates US Air Force policy today. Well, it, and it, it's why we suspect that there's something being hidden, that there's something that they're concealing that they know, frankly, which explains why they've decided to shut this issue down. You had the Washington flyover in 1952, this was an issue that was at the forefront of American national security concern. The most sensitive areas of the of the uh, American government had been essentially the airspace above them had been penetrated by unknown objects doing incredible things that the US Air Force could do nothing about. And so the very next year, they have the Robertson panel. And what does it do? It tries to shut down public it's- awareness and interest in this issue. Why? What did Ruppelt say about that? Well, it's the it's the pivot point, uh, the Robertson panel. That's the point where the attempts at some transparency became more like, you know, we just better not admit these things are real. We need it. Maybe if we stop talking about it so much, people will stop seeing it so much is how they they kind of came down on it. And and I just want to drag it back to Ruppelt's uh, experience, because uh, he spent uh, those early years in Blue Book and people always give him high marks for it. He had a staff of 10 people. They were investigators. They were doing a good job. J. Allen Hynek was involved at the time. He thought he was doing a good job. These guys were trying to do the best they could because they were trying uh, to seriously look into it. And I just want to point something out. He leaves in 1953. He doesn't leave until after the Robertson panel. And one of the reasons you could say maybe he left is that after the Robertson panel, Blue Book got downsized from 10 people to three people, uh, one of whom was Ruppelt. So he may have thought, okay, I see the writing on the wall. I got to get out of this place. But uh, one of the reasons people liked him and, and that he is kind of a hero of the movement, if you will, is because he was willing to be honest about this very concept of proof. And I pulled something from a book he wrote that I'm going to be talking about in a second. But here's what he said. He said, the hassle over the word proof boils down to one question. What constitutes proof? Does a UFO have to land at the river entrance to the Pentagon near the Joint Chiefs of Staff offices? Or is it proof when a ground radar station detects a UFO, sends a jet to intercept it, the jet pilot sees it and locks on with his radar, only to have the UFO streak away at a phenomenal speed? Is it proof when a jet pilot fires at a UFO and sticks to his story, even under the threat of court-martial? Does this constitute proof? And, and, and he was saying that, I think he wrote a book subsequently, didn't yes, he? he? Did. Where he basically, he acknowledged the reality of what he saw. And he was questioning why this issue was being shut down by his former superiors in the military. Well, he, he wrote in the 50s, there were a lot of people writing books. Donald Kehoe was probably the most popularized at that point. But he, uh, after he left... Um, Ruppelt wrote a book in 1956. This is three years roughly after he left. It was called Report on the Flying Saucers. I believe that was the title. No, the Report on the Unidentified Flying Objects. Why wouldn't he use his own word, of course? Now, he wrote a 1956 edition that is astonishing. I've been listening to it and reading it. It's quite full of of cases. and, And any one of these given cases would probably make you go, well, okay, I need to know more about that. That's incredible. And Yet, and this is the crazy thing, 
It was very accepting that UFOs might be interplanetary. It was very accepting that they were real. And guess what? Four years later, 1960, Edward Ruppelt puts out a revised edition of it where it's the same exact book except three chapters have been added to the end. And I've read them now. And those three chapters basically say, never mind. He basically says of UFOs in his 1960 book, I'm positive they don't exist. There's not even a glimmer of hope for the UFO. Now, I want everyone to understand, I'm not trying to be a crazy uh, lone gunman here, but after he wrote that in 1960, a few months later, he died of a massive heart attack. All right. And he was only 37 years old. So I just put that out. That's his coda. He told the truth and then he had to pull it back and then he died. Do you think he was snowed? Do you think he was told to pull his head in by his bosses? I think. Is that your suspicion? Yeah. yeah, I'm not going to, uh, by the way, argue that he was murdered or anything. I mean, who knows? I mean, I think that that's that's a bridge too far for uh, for that leap. But uh, was he snowed? I think what he was told uh, was you can't if you want. If you want to continue to work in the way that you're working, you're going to have to pull some of that back. And I think he did, because the same exact thing happened with Admiral Hillencotter, the first CIA uh, uh, director, who actually spoke openly in 1960 and in 1962 pulled it back. So there was somebody on the inside was telling people, don't be so open. So 60 years on, my friend. Let's roll forward 60 years to 2022. Yeah. Has really that much changed? I mean, I know we're being told now that we're going to get transparency. We're going to get some kind of disclosure from the Congress later on this year with the NDAA legislation. But really, aren't Mellon, Elizondo and others right? Isn't it more likely than not that we're going to get snowed and that the <clears throat> the forces that for some reason want to keep this issue secret, want to suppress it from public awareness, are just going to keep keep it secret? I like to think no. I'll tell you why. Uh, I know that that's easy to say, and I will agree with your initial point, which is it does feel like we've been here before. I mean, uh, as I said, I've spent the last few days uh, reviewing Edward Ruppelt's report on the unidentified flying objects, and it feels very similar to what we're going through right now. I mean, the cases are like, oh, my God, that's exactly what just happened last year or this year. Uh, So you do get a lot of that. Now, what is different? I'll give you just one thing that's different. As Ruppelt said when he was talking about proof, they had pilots saying they saw things. They had some radar returns, et cetera. Well, we've already gone beyond that. We have better data. Uh, We're getting the data from private enterprise, and we're getting the data from the government. Even if the government turns off the spigot, there are leaks. There is data to be seen. And uh, the data that we're getting is what gave us those three videos in 2017. So maybe not. Maybe it's not the same. So for me, my takeaway from the Ruppelt story and indeed from the Harry Turner story is the importance of keeping up the pressure on our democratically elected representatives. It's vitally important that if people want to know the real story, they keep the pressure up. We'd better be thinking about wrapping up, my friend. But do you agree with that sentiment? I do. I think uh, we've entered a new period here. If there's, if there is something new about it, it is the sense that the people are are actively 
marshalling their forces in a different way. Uh, in the in the 50s, where Ruppelt, and then in the 60s, where uh, Harry Turner were operating, it was a different world. Uh, there were other things they were protesting. I guess you'd say that about today. But I, I, I do think there are some... The, some of the people who are speaking out, like Elizondo and and Mellon, and now increasingly former presidents and uh, CIA directors, there's an accretion of all that that feels different to me. It does. Yeah, uh, that's my takeaway. My takeaway is that we're now in an unprecedented period where, okay, back in the 1950s, in the very early 1950s, they were admitting that the phenomenon was real. But now there's a level of momentum here and there's a public awareness that didn't exist back then. And that's what we're going to continue to explore on Need to Know. I think we might need to wrap it up now, okay. my friend. But, let, me, uh, let me just do a little housekeeping here because people want to know, how can I get to know more about Need to Know? What do I need to know about you guys? Uh, we have a, a, a website, a home base, if you will, and you're looking at it now. It's needtoknow.today. And that's basically got everything. And we come to you in two ways. We do have this podcast and we're really appreciative of everyone who's listening to it. And then we, on a secondary level, put it out as a video on YouTube. And you can find both of those ways through that need to know dot today. So, okay, I'm done. We should get out of here. <laughs> Best wishes to all of you. And thanks very much for listening and watching this latest episode of Need to Know. And we'll be back with more looking under dark rocks of UFO transparency sometime very soon. We can handle the truth. People get ready. <laughs>